you have that in your Bible, Psalm 1, if you have a Bible, page 383 in the church Bible. We're going to read Psalm 1, and as you are turning there, if you have questions about the Bible, Christ, or what you heard this morning, when we're through together, I'll be happy to try to answer those questions for you. Psalm 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So this summer is the summer in the Psalms. That's going to be our brief over these next three months, spending the Lord's day in the Lord's book with the Lord's people in the Psalms. And what I'm going to do this morning is give an introduction that will kind of set us on our way in the Psalms. Then, then that's going to be followed by first explaining the danger of reading Psalm 1 or any Psalm for that matter wrongly. And then secondly, the reward of reading Psalm 1 or any Psalm rightly. And then third, the promise for those who live life righteously. Because as the psalmist says there very, very clearly, there's only two ways to live. Now, if I was a parent here as you do your normal, regular um, devotionals, whenever you teach your Bible to your children at home, in the night or in the morning, or whenever you choose to do that, as you should, I would, I would purposely attach myself to this sermon series in a very meaningful way. I, I would let this sermon series help you all summer long. And because I think the summer and the Psalms fit, and it fits for parents and kids, but it also fits for older couples, middle-aged couples, single people, whatever. The summer and the Psalms fit, and I'm going to tell you why. One of the wonderful things about living in America is is that we are all usually given a bit more time in the summer. And of course, time spent can be constructive, and time spent can be be squandered. And and yes, we should enjoy the needed rest the summer offers us, but of course, there could be too much of that as well. And, And we will be judged according to how we redeemed the time. God says that clearly. However, the point here is as we study the Psalms, one of the things we're going to find out that it's that when we come face to face with our, our, our Redeemer, our Maker, and our King, then that's going to honestly take time to contemplate. And so then you take that reality and you place the issues of life before a holy God and then you think about this holy God as the Psalms describe Him, then that's going to take enormous Time to match the enormous truth that we're given in the Psalms. So, for example, when I read Psalm 103, 4, and 10, but you, O God, offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Only foolish people would just blow through that as if nothing really had to happen for that wonderful state to take place. So this demands thought, and so it demands time. And, and as the Christian thinks through this, it takes us to the cross, and that demands time. When the hymn was written, Oh, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free, that wasn't written by a brand new Christian. 
That was written by someone in Christ for quite a while who just became staggered by the fact that our sins could be forgiven by a holy God through the merits of someone else. I mean, and to this day, it's still incredible to me. Not only this, but in the Psalms, we come face to face with evil done by us, evil done to us, and the evil all around us. And that demands meditative, time-quenching thought. You know, why in the dickens do I keep doing that? Why in the dickens has that happened to me? Why was that done to me? Why does this world reject Christ? Why do I reject Christ just plain as rain commands? Why do we reject it so easily? Consequently, the psalmist tells us that the weaker we feel, that's not a horrible place. The psalmist tells us the, the harder we lean on God and the harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually. Like a tree, Psalm 1 verse 3, like a tree planted by streams of water, you see it there, bearing its fruit in season because it takes time to bear fruit. Also, in the Psalms, we come face to face with great, great joys about God. That's Psalm 100, right? After the psalmist writes, shout for joy, worship the Lord with joy, know this about the Lord, serve the Lord, and so on. He says, be thankful. And then you say, okay, why? Why should I be thankful? And the psalmist writes, for the Lord is good. It means the Lord is, is pleasant and delightful. His loyal love is his hesed. That's the Hebrew word, his covenant love, his I ain't quitting you love endures forever and he's faithful forever he's true forever and when you think about that and you understand that who wouldn't want to worship God and pray to that God and spend time with that God as you begin to understand that and that takes time so in the Psalms we come face to face with our maker redeemer and king we come face to face with the evil done by us to us and around us we come face to face with the great joys about God and why we should have them. And then when we also come face to face, and this is good for us, with the frailty of life and the certainty of death and the reality of judgment. We're not going to be 30 forever. We're not going to be 40 forever. We're not going to be 50 forever and so on. Psalm 90.10, for the days quickly pass and we fly away. And then the writer goes on, Teach us to number our days rightly so we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, the clock is ticking, so God help us to live wisely. Redeem the time. Don't trash the time. Well, why? Well, when time is up, Psalm 1, verse 5, do you see it there? The wicked will not stand in the judgment. And that shouldn't make us happy. That should make us heartbroken and go out and get them. And that kind of straightforward honesty helps us and perhaps reshapes our life and exposes the absolute silliness of a fallen world system of belief that never orders itself with any reference to God and sin and Christ and grace and law and, and Christian duty and the fact that this world is coming to an end. The world never orders itself that way and so many fall for that line of living to their hurt. So in the Psalms, we can't help but define and pay attention here. This amazing display of emotion, human emotion, and how God would have our emotions be shaped by him in these psalms as life is lived under the providential sovereign care of our king in heaven. And that becomes tremendously important. In fact, I'm going to say to you that becomes massively important. It might be one of the most important things about the psalm because for better or for worse, we are more and more becoming an emotional society. 
What we feel is more important than what is true. Sincerity is now it's the same as truth. And so we're going to need God's help. And we are on so many levels a society that is hard to please. And when that happens, that plays havoc with our emotions. And so you couple that with our ability to covet. And we can be awfully difficult to be around. Our emotions can be just gutted or harassed or locked up all over the place. And the psalmist comes to us and says, would you just be still? Would you just quiet your mind down and know that I am God? I will be exalted everywhere and I am with you. And that becomes massively important. Now some of you may know the Psalms have been called the prayer book of the Bible because there's a tremendous number of prayers and pleas in the Bible, in the Psalms, excuse me. The Psalms have also been called the hymn book of the Bible because the name itself, Psalm, means essentially songs of praise. But better still, if you dig a little bit deeper, the word Psalms means literally songs sung accompanied by musical instruments. Songs sung accompanied by musical instruments. And so the Psalms are written as poetry and they have this kind of technical aspect that the interpreters try to do. In fact, if you look at your Bible, what can you see there is you see one line indented after the other. other. So a straight line, then a line comes indented. Then back to a straight line and a line comes indented. Why is that the case? Well, it helps you to know that these Psalms have a rhythm to them and they are meant to be sung. They're meant to be sung congregationally And then and only then are they to be sung personally. So, some of you might know this, some of you might not. The Psalms, generally speaking, was the hymn book of the Bible for the first 1,700 plus years of the church. So, whenever whenever the church gathered together, they mostly sang from the Psalms. In fact, they continued to do this up until the time of the Reformation, and then new hymns were being written, which we thank God for. Now, if you think about that, that they sang the songs in church, then it makes sense for two reasons. Number one, because when we we speak to God in public worship, we are singing to God. We're speaking to God in prayer, and we're singing to God in worship. Praying and worshiping, uh, praying and singing. And we're doing it in Christ's name, which means Christ would be able to say, Amen, so be it, I'm with you, with whatever we're singing and with whatever we're praying. And so, in worship, we are given God-given words and God-given songs and God-given prayers so that we might please the God we worship and call on Him in power. So, a gentleman named Christopher Ashe on this said, In the Psalms, we find the affection of Christ and the power of Christ. Stop. Okay. I don't even see the name Christ, kind of, in the Old Testament. Where is Christ in the Old Testament? Well, think with me. The Psalms are a spirit-filled writing. Christ, John tells us, was filled with the Spirit without limit. And the Spirit's work is to point to Christ and repeat what Christ says and affirm what Christ says and illuminate what Christ says. And that's what you have here. So, so the second reason is that in the very essence of the Psalms, it helps us then to, because they're Spirit-filled, they help us to more and more think God thoughts. Now, if you're listening to me, that should become precious to you. The fact that we, as just mere humans, can think God thoughts. And that's what happens when we go to the Psalms. 
How does this appear to God? What would God do in this situation? And so then, listen carefully, at that point our emotions are then protected by our Father in heaven and they're shaped and guided because our thinking becomes guided by our Father in heaven and it is shaped and protected by our Father in heaven as we meditate on the Psalms and God's instruction. And that's the word translated law in verse 2. Day and night with God's instruction. Torah is the Hebrew word. It means God's instruction. That's why the Psalms take time. That's why I can never get out of my head whenever I'm reading the Psalms, I should be underneath the tree, barefoot if you would, and just reading the Bible and thinking, 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 thinking. Why? Because in the Psalms we find the king who's king of everything. He, and he's going to do what he needs to do to provide for his people, protect his people, defend his people, strengthen his people, instruct his people, begin to shape the emotions of his people in a sensible way, even though we live in a fallen world, even though we're fallen people. And he's going to usher us safely into heaven, even as we live in this frail human body, serving our king. So, so ladies and gentlemen, that's our God. That's our God. And so we need to pay attention to the Psalms. And that takes us to our first point, the danger of reading the Psalms wrongly or Psalm 1 wrongly. And so what I mean by that is is that if you're a Christian or even an honest thinking person and you read that Psalm, it would appear on the surface to have some problems with it, particularly trying to understand verse 3, the word prosper or prosperity. Because first of all, we know that many unrighteous men and women and young people would appear to prosper. That's what Psalm 73 says. It's, this is what it says, 73.3. It almost did me when I saw, uh, did me in, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Now that was an honest look at the world from the psalmist per God. And when you and I look at the world honestly, historically, and currently, it gives us a picture of how many rascals are doing fantastic and seemingly with not a care in the world. I mean, they're so wonderful that they have their own theme music when they walk around. And at that point, then, the great danger of contextualization, remember that word about biblical interpretation, comes into play. Because we said this a few weeks ago. Contextualization is making your own personal application of the text without doing a proper investigation of the text, thereby making a horrible interpretation of the text. In other words, prosperity means to me, or this is what prosperity means to me, or this is what I like it to mean, or this is what I need it to mean. So I hope you see the problem. Because our concern should not be what does prosperity mean to us, but what does prosperity mean to God? Or if you like, what does a prosperous life look like in the Bible before the eyes of God? So you say, does it mean easy street living? Does it mean financial freedom as it's touted today? Does it mean everything always going just the way we like it all the time? Does it mean a life with absolutely no struggles? Does it mean a life that we have no struggles, we have everything we need, and so there's no, no great cause to just throw ourselves into so that we can stay in our slippers all day long if we like? Does prosperity mean nice things and big brains and great bodies and super-duper children? What does prosperity mean? So you ask yourself the question, who is the most, 
who had the most prosperous life in the whole of the Bible from God's point of view. I bet you eventually we would all say, Jesus. And so think with me for a moment. Moment. This is Isaiah 53, 10, a prophecy about Jesus. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And what if I quoted you, Jesus, who said in John 10, 10, I have come to give you life and to give you life to its fullest. And so he was speaking to the crowds and he was speaking to his followers, some of them who would die and suffer because of their loyalty to the Christ and the new covenant. And then what if I told you, now listen carefully, what if I told you the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. It uses a Greek word for prosperity in verse 3 that has the exact same meaning of Jesus' words of full life in John 10.10 10, which means it's almost certain that when Jesus said what he said in John 10.10, he was thinking about Psalm 1.1, about life to the full, a prosperous life. And then, what have I asked you to think about the fact that the book to the left of Psalms is the book of Job. And Job was a man who suffered horribly for a long stretch of his life, even though the Bible called him blameless, Job 1.1, blameless, an upright man, righteous, who feared God and shunned evil, Allah, all the requirements of a blessed, prosperous life in Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. And yet Job lost so much and still uh, remained in this blameless state. So someone says, yeah, but he got it all back at the end. Yeah, but he lost 10 kids. 10 children died and they were replaced. And then what have I asked you to consider Job's three friends who said, Job, the reason why you're suffering, the reason why your life's on the downturn is because you're sinning. And we discover that they were absolutely wrong. And then, what have I told you to consider party boy Solomon, who's just two books to the right of Psalms, the book of Ecclesiastes. And when you read that book, you find out that he lived, lived it up at levels that you and I will never know and should never know. But then at the end of his life, he warns his readers as, as his, quote, prosperous life was coming to an end. So he was the captain of industry. It was wine, women, and song. It was, it was intellect to levels that we would have never known. And all that living left him empty so that he could write, like he could only write meaningless, meaningless. At the end of Ecclesiastes, in the beginning, everything is, is useless. If you like the complete opposite of the blessed state of Psalm 1. So now do you see the danger of reading Psalms or Psalm 1 or any Psalm wrongly, interpreting the words the way you want them to mean, skipping over important phrases like Psalm 1-3b, which yields its fruit in season. And so as you give your own meaning, others are confused, you're confused, things don't turn out the way that you thought they should, therefore you begin to get, be at odds with God. What are you doing, God? I can't believe you let this happen. It's not working the way you thought. Or because we have the potential to be so envious of others and you look at others and you say, nothing ever goes wrong for them, only us. And therein you see the problem. You're sensible people. Not everyone who appears to have it all together has it all together and has it all together with God. Listen to C.S. Lewis. This is absolutely terrific. 
He's thinking about God. He's thinking about the, the seeming silence of God in our suffering and in the injustice. He's, he's meditating. And listen to what he says. The conclusion I dread about whether God is or does or does not exist is not so there's no God after all. That's not the conclusion I dread. But, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. You see? So we come to the Psalms slowly, on our knees, whole Bible, carefully thinking. So what is a prosperous life? Well, I can tell you, as a New Testament Christian, the prosperous life is at least this. It's the kind of life God would have us live in a fallen world as fallen people saved by His absolutely amazing grace through faith in Christ. It means lots for some. It means not so much for others. But it means always enough for everyone. It it may mean a relatively pain-free life for some. A relatively painful life for others. It may mean that some things will come awfully hard for us and other things... And perhaps other people, not so hard. But a prosperous life will will always mean making much of Jesus Christ, repenting every day, relying on His finished work at Calvary every day, always. Thanking God for His mercy, thanking God for others, emptying yourself out for both, staying needy before Him. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed is the needy person as a way of life. All the while knowing, and this makes me fear God, all the while knowing that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, because there's some things I'm not ready to give up yet, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because His love is better than life. Okay, that's the danger of reading the Psalms wrongly. Point number two, the reward of reading the Psalms or Psalm 1 rightly. Okay, so what does that mean? I thought you could just go and boom, automatically it'll come to you. Well, no. If we're reading the Psalms rightly, correctly, then the first thing we need to do is we need to look for Jesus Christ in the Psalms. First, why? Well, Jesus did. And he left this pattern for his followers. In fact, I'm going to read to you what he said. Luke chapter 24, as Jesus is about to explain the Gospels from the Psalms. He said to them, this is what I told you. So his followers are before him. This is before the ascension. This is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. The graphi is the Hebrew word, or Greek word. It means they could open their minds so they could understand the whole Bible, which includes the Psalms. And then he told them, this is what was written in the Psalms. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now what is that? That is the gospel. And where did Jesus get that? Well, in part, he got it from the Psalms. You ready? Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? You will not let your Holy One see decay. Psalm 16.10 Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Psalm 110.1 And so when you think about that, that's why Jesus went to Nicodemus who came to him at night. And remember, Jesus gave him a bit of trouble because he didn't know his Old Testament the way Jesus thought he should. 
and he says, you're an Old Testament teacher and you can't figure out the fact that you need to be born again, you don't understand that the way to be born again, that there was going to come a time when God would, would make people alive, dead people alive, dead in their sins and give them new hearts and, and new spirits, replacing the old stuff. And you see, that's the danger so many fall for and turn to in Psalm 1. And what they do is they turn it into kind of a works-based text only. So, so you can hear the preacher, you know, you want your full refrigerator, you want your bank accounts full, you want a quality of life that is off the charts, you want to have all your dreams come true, then get going with your Bible. And nobody's looking at Jesus. And nobody's looking at the gospel. So, if you read the Psalms correctly, then you will see Jesus Christ perfectly. You'll see His righteousness, His wisdom, His redemption, His sanctification. And once you see Him first, then and only then is it safe to look at yourself in the Psalms. Because I want you to see, on just a basic level, Psalms 1, if understood wrongly, could turn Christianity into like an exercise program. And here comes Mr. Bible Man, right? I'm going to read the whole Bible all the time. I'm going to read it more than anybody else. I'm going to read it. I'm going to set it. I'm going to day and night. Read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Read it. Okay, Mr. Talking Bible, you win. You win. So if you read Psalm 1 as an unconverted Jewish person, you would read only bounty and blessing in the material, domestic, and vocational realm alone. That's it. But... When you read Psalm 1 with your Jesus glasses on as a Christian, as a New Covenant Christian, you'll see a better prosperity and a better promise because of Christ. Because the Bible is prepared to say that Jesus is enough. He's Savior, He's King, and He's enough. Listen to the Bible in the New Testament, Ephesians 1.3. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How did that happen? You became a Christian. Colossians 2, 2 and 3. In Christ is the full riches and complete understanding. Christ in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want all wisdom? You want all knowledge? Christ. Colossians 1, 16. Christ whom all things were created for. Christ. First point. The danger of reading Psalm 1 wrongly. Misunderstanding of prosperity. Second part, the reward of reading Psalm 1 rightly. See Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus Christ, then everything else will begin to make sense. Final point, the promise for those who live righteously. Well, if you look at your Bible, what's the first word that jumps out of Psalm 1? Blessed. It's happiness. The first word right out of the chute, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. That's a generic word for man. Blessed is the woman, the, the, the man, the young person. So, happy is this certain kind of person, this certain kind of man, woman, or child. And so, this Psalm 1 is the gateway to the rest of the Psalms, and it begins with humanity's happiness. Now, have you ever thought about that? God's book, prayer book, worship book, and it begins with man. I mean, if you wanted that, you could go on this newsstand and get an Us magazine, right? Us Magazine, uh, you want to be happy forever? Turn to page 16. And you turn to page 16 and they tell you, um, go gaga all over yourself. So this book begins with man's happiness. Blessed is this person. And the word blessed means supremely happy. Or to be envied is this person. 
So, so this is subjective experiential. In other words, this is talking about true happiness. This truly happy person. To be envied is the person who. And if you look at the text, it's pretty straightforward, right? Our happiness is tied to our holiness. Nothing external, nothing. Our happiness is, is tied to our holiness. Don't you want that to be true? I mean, if you had to tie yourself, your happiness to anything else in the world, wouldn't you want it to be only with holiness? When I'm the happiest is when I'm the holiest. I always tell my kids, I'm home, I'm sure I've told you this before. When dad is grumpy and mean, you can almost be certain that he has sinned or he's about ready to sin and he needs to repent or, or he just better back off a bit. I mean, it's true, it's true. So like... Jesus, the psalmist, gives us two options. Jesus' first sermon, remember? There are two roads. A wicked and wide road and a narrow road and a holy road. Two trees, a good tree and a bad tree. Two fruit, bad fruit, good fruit. There's two houses on two foundations, rock or sand. There's just two ways to live. The psalmist, two ways to live. Righteous way, wicked way. And you can see there in verse 1 that the wicked go from bad to worse. They go from walking in their wickedness to standing in the wickedness. Look at your Bible. To just sitting down in their wickedness. And you think about that. To me, a, a child comes to mind, right? So there's a huge mud pile and there's the kid. And he looks at that mud pile and the first thing he does is he kind of strolls around the mud pile. And then he says, okay, I'll just put my foot in the thing. And he's just standing there in the mud. And then give him a few minutes, what happens? He's just plunged in the mud. That's exactly how I sin. I walk around the thing for a bit. I just stick my foot in the thing just for a little bit. And then before you know it, I am plunged in filth. Completely rejecting God's character, His commands and His plans. In other words, the wicked person hates what God loves and loves what God hates. And they reveal it, verse 1b, and they're mocking and the rejection of the instruction of God. So I say it like this. This is ignorance and arrogance. Ignorance. I don't need anything from God. And so you become an arrogant, ignorant person. Why? Well, verse 2. They don't spend morning and day and night with Jesus. Isn't that what verse 2 says? They're not spending the day and the night with Jesus. And so there's this progressive warning that the psalmist gives us. This wickedness, going our own way, no reference to God, or even being religious, but you have your kind of makeup God in your head. That is a fast track to emptiness and frustration. And you see the progression. Emptiness and frustration now, verse 4, like chaff. And then the judgment to come, verse 5, at God's appointed end. But, but the happy, or excuse me, the, yeah, the happy person is the righteous person. Do you know that song, that happy song that's kind of new, like a room without a roof? I'm happy, just want to explode. They go from strength to strength. The happy person, says the Bible, is the person who believes God and, and is cared for by God. And don't come to me and say, well, we need to be like little children because children are always so happy. No, they're not. No, they're not. You don't pay attention to kids if you think they're always happy. They're sinners just like us. So our happiness has nothing to do with, is never tied to external personal circumstances. Nothing. Think with me. If I had a magic wand and I could just wave it over all of you and I said, tell me what you want to make you happy and you will have it, 
So many of us might be tempted to think of some external thing or circumstance, external, to make us happy. But external things are like the seawater. You, you keep think, drinking seawater, you'll get more thirsty. You drink enough of it, you'll get sick and die. Verse 2, the righteous person, the happy person, delights in the law of the Lord, the instruction of the Bible. He meditates on it day and night. Good tree then, planted by good streams with good fruit given at the proper time. Jesus said something like this. There was a lady at the well and she was a bad lady. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them, they will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, do you think Jesus was saying that to sound good or do you think he was being truthful? I mean, in our day, we go from thing to thing to thing so quickly. That thing will make me happy. Then that thing will make me happy. I need five of those and three of this. I need to do that. Happy, happy, happy. No. Drink from Jesus. The warning. If you follow the way of the world, if you do this, if you make too much of yourself, if you never question yourself, if you squash others, don't believe God, reject Christ, reject the Lord's day, the law, reject truth, tank on the Bible, trust in gold and not God, and behave as you don't need to plunge yourself into Christ, and behave as if you don't need a Savior. If you do that, verse 4, you're like chaff. The, the casing of the grain, you're absolutely useless, and it's burned up. That is a picture of a useless, fruitless life that has spent all its time on itself buying that lie from the world. So, so the wicked, instead of living under this maxim, it's a beautiful Latin phrase, Dio optimo maximo. For God, the best and the greatest. The wicked don't live like that. They live like Frank Sinatra. The record shows, I took the blows, and I did it my way. I did it my way. The way of the mocker. The way of the wicked. It's amazing, isn't it? We're just about done. It's amazing that we're almost done. Yes, okay. But it's also amazing. Look at the first word of Psalm 1. Blessed. Last word of Psalm 1. Perish. Bookends. What makes the difference? Well, here it is. God calls for absolute perfection. Yes, he does. The righteous know this. The righteous are sinful. The righteous confess this. They don't pretend. The righteous then know themselves sinful, are counted righteous, because as they meditate on the word of God, the living word of God, Jesus Christ, they discover that the very righteousness they need, only Jesus Christ can give. Therefore, the righteous just swim in that imputed righteousness, that stream of imputed righteousness through the death of Christ, and they don't wither, and they will prosper, and they will be watched over. That's verse 6. And they will engage in the, in, the, in the work of mortification of the flesh. So they'll keep trying to say no to sin, and they'll keep trying to say no to wickedness and to the mocker, and etc. That's the righteous, but not so the wicked. The wicked, they can't find any need to repent. The wicked are going to go their own way. And there's only two ways to live. Two ways. K 
Keep saying no to Christ. Stop saying no to Christ so you can say yes to Christ. Two ways. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and pray.